Welcome to Robot Friends, a podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 10, Eigenrobot vs. Religion. Hi all, I'm here with Michael Kersey, who is a Twitch philosopher, and Chris Allen, a baby Catholic and programmer. And we're going to be talking about religion, living a good life, and how to inculcate virtue in the youth of America. Welcome, guys. Thanks, man. Good to be um, here. Yeah, no, great having you. I really enjoyed being on your Twitch, po- Twitch podcast, your Twitch stream the other night, and getting riotously drunk in front yeah, of an audience. No, we had a great time. The uh, I like to say it's a talk show, not a podcast, but that's pure uh, posturing. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. If you start calling everything a podcast, I'm going to assume you're a boomer, I can. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, that's not too far off. I started I started watching Dia Vlogs at Blogging Heads whenever that launched. That must have been 2005, something like that. And it's been a low-key part of my life ever since. And I think I just haven't updated my terminology to match what the youths are doing. You just said die of vlogs, die of vlogs. Yeah, they were. So the, the novel feature of blogging heads at that point was not only that you had two people talking about some set of topics of the day, but that they recorded themselves on camera and afterward they would stitch together the camera recordings to form video of two people talking right. and people couldn't see each other. And in fact, I think they were talking on the phone while, while, it, while they were having this die, die of vlog and it was, it was really something back back in 2005 to see people just going at it like that huh. so learn something every day how far we have come <laughs> okay so given that we're going to be talking a bit about religion i think it might be worthwhile for each of you to just talk about where you are religiously and how you got there and why so i guess we can start with chris you're you identify as a baby catholic so you converted i think within the last few years right yeah, um, I, I, so I was formally received into the church and took my sacraments Easter Vigil 2019. Um, I was an atheist for 10, 11, 12 years, kind of depending on how you mark it back uh, prior to that. And I was brought up Protestant-ish, you know. Um, my mother was Lutheran, formally speaking, but we spent about as much time at Baptist services and Sunday stuff as we did Lutheran. And... Um, yeah, I'd, I think leading up to my conversion in 2018, I'd just kind of been marinating in uh, online Catholic Eastern Orthodox Twitter culture and watching them debate stuff, talk about stuff, and I just kind of got interested. Yeah, okay. So it was just seeing other people being interested in something and it seeming like they had a good vibe. Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the substance of what they're talking about was definitely like a lot of it, though, because you know, somebody who grew up, you know, it's kind of generic American Protestant. I didn't know anything about the church fathers or patristics or, or anything about like kind of traditional Catholic doctrine or Eastern Orthodox doctrine or anything like that. And, um, I realized there was a lot about Christianity I didn't know. And I got really interested. Um, yeah. Cool. And was there, was there some particular moment or I don't know what, what's the term, like, um, moment of, revelation that happened to you or did it was it just kind of a slow fostering of of religious sentiment um so there were there were a couple things i mean one was like there's this kind of a um a woundedness i've been carrying around since i'd become an atheist um mm-hmm. i i 
I'd apostatized and, and decided I was kind of like a weak form of an atheist. I didn't believe I could like disprove God's existence, but I wasn't really an agnostic either. So I termed that as weak atheism. Mm-hmm. But it, was, it felt like an inexorable conclusion that I didn't really want to fall into. Right? It just seemed reasonable. And I felt like I had to be um, honest to my kind of conscience and understanding. And I had a somewhat deficient understanding of like the Christian understanding of faith. That was um, part of the issue there. And, um, so I, I first started by just getting curious and then, um, I started finding some of the early church's history and witness compelling. Some of the actual historical facts seemed, uh, very strong to me. And, um, I, I'd say it was kind of a step function. I had reached a point where I was pretty certain I wanted to convert to some form of apostolic Christianity, a form of Christianity that had a claim to the apostolic succession. And I gave mm-hmm. the Eastern Orthodox kind of first hearing, so to speak, because I knew less about them. And yeah. um, long story short on that one, um, they were trying to say the same thing, but with less clear uh, doc- doctrine, basically. Mm-hmm. And the um, their story of, you know, why they're right about like papal primacy was, they were trying way too hard with not much like effect. So I wasn't very convinced and um, I didn't really have anything against Roman Catholicism. So I uh, talked to a buddy of mine about it and he was like, Hey, you should check out my parish. They're really cool. And I did. And I joined the RCA program and I met my now wife two weeks later. Nice. Cool. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I'm very happy. And okay. So Michael, uh, what's, what's your situation? I understand you were raised Jewish. Is that right? Yes. Um, Raised Jewish. I went to reform Jewish, like Hebrew schools, um, where I got in more trouble than I ever got in in regular school because I knew the authority was lower and the consequences were lower. Um, but, Interesting. Uh, yeah, I um, yeah, I was raised reformed Jewish. I spent a bunch of years, in, with, you know, kind of having philosophical awakening of, of some kind, you know, like high school, et cetera, being like, wait, you can, there's all these questions and you can try to answer them. Um, and then I be, I endorsed atheism for a whole bunch of years after that, uh, got swept up in the, um, you know, the less wrong rationality crowd for a while. Um, spent some time as a, as a Randian objectivist, which I have, I think thankfully left behind me, but um, you know, it kind of gives a sense of like a militant atheism of a, of a sort, you know uh, there's that uh, there's that part in, what is it? Bioshock where they they're doing this like Randian underwater city. And there's this big leering face of the founder and it says no gods or Kings, only men. Um, and that was kind of my, my vibe about the whole thing. Uh, I subsequently ended up for, complicated reasons drifting from the from the less wrong in rationalist orthodoxy you could say and over the last few years have been so i don't have a satisfying answer to your question about where i'm at religiously because i don't know yeah um but i will say a couple things which are that uh i probably if if i'm an atheist um i probably am one of the more god-fearing atheists out there um i a lot of how I think about this is in terms of process, if that kind of makes sense. And so um, I think that 
uh, possibly in a world historical sense, I get placed as a mystic for that reason, where to me, there's a process that I'm following and the process involves trying to find God. And I have a way of grounding that. So I, I sort of have this like kind of, there's like a bit of like a naturalism apology activity I'm trying to do for religion where I'm trying ah. to not, not reject anything I know and not reject like the best of that the Dawkinses of the world have provided, right. Not reject uh, a lot of that stuff. Um, Cause historically the, I think these were not really considered to be intention, but then for whatever reason, I don't actually know the history of atheism, but they, uh, came to at least seem to be in this tension. And so I kind of ended up in a situation where the vast majority of brilliant people that I know are like, yeah, obviously atheism. And then there's kind of been like a trad resurgence in the last few years where some of them are saying, no, 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 no. Like we believe things now. And so I'm, I'm trying to sort of resolve that stuff for myself. And I'll at least say that my, 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 you know, propositional belief in God, I, I have a bunch of intellectual views, but in some ways I'm more interested in, the direction my spirit is pointing. Um, and so there, that's, that's a rabbit hole, but maybe that's not a bad first stab at your question. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. I identify with a lot of that. I, so I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic school through sixth grade. And once we hit the the seventh grade, eighth grade period, I, I found the way that the church structured things was pretty alien alienating to me, partly intellectually, but also somewhat socially in, in ways that maybe are outside the scope of this podcast. And since then, I mean, I, I definitely went through my very tiresome atheist phase when I was a teenager. And as the internet atheism wars progressed and peaked in what, probably 2007, 2008, something like that before receding, I had found atheism to become not something that was interesting and provided a, you know, providing a way of looking at the world that was sort of exciting and revelatory, but more just really tiresome. And I think nothing has pushed me away from atheism more than some of the atheists. The atheists. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, which maybe is often the case for, for many sorts of religion. So, I mean, it could be in my case that I'm just sort of a like constituent constitutive, like, I don't know, misanthrope isn't quite the right term, but whenever I see somebody putting a lot of structure on something, it often ends up turning me off of that thing entirely. Mm. So, I mean, as to what I am now, I, I just don't know. I find Catholicism appealing in a lot of ways, but I think that one issue that I will end up having with anything is that it's very difficult for me not to start critiquing something. And at the core of many religions, and I don't exclude Catholicism from this, as I understand it, there there has to be a core of faith. And, you know, I, I could see myself instrumentally doing things like going to church or partaking in communion, but that actually seems disrespectful um, to, to the extent that, I mean, I, I just have a very difficult time believing in anything. Right. So that's that's kind of where I stand right now. And I think we have a pretty good baseline for where each of us is and where we're coming at some of these issues from. And having done that, I, I want to dive into a couple of things that have happened on the timeline in the last few days that have been very interesting to me. So when we, we we've been a few weeks putting this podcast together and 
I, I think that these are two new things that have come up, but they both fall very much in this vein of, of inquiry. And the first one is I, I tweeted a couple of days ago that I would enjoy seeing Joe Biden be excommunicated, <laughs> which, you know, it was partly a joke tweet, but I was also serious about that in, in the sense that make that dude you know, kneel in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, let's get our Henry. Was that Henry the fourth? I don't remember. Maybe no, Henry the fourth was someone else. So, yeah. So, you know, he, he made to, he gave an executive order that I think increased the support of the United States for abortion abroad. And, you know, given, given that abortion is viewed as murder by Catholicism, um, it, it seems like, a something that you would be very loath to do if you were in line with Catholic doctrine. And in re- I, we can, we can talk a little bit about what excommunication would mean in this case, but what was more interesting to me than that event was somebody in the replies to that thread mentioned that they, and probably a lot of Catholics in the United States, like throw out the number half would, if, if Biden were excommunicated immediately become Protestant and that was that really threw me, and I think it's most likely true. But I also think that if you accept that premise, it really sort of opens the question of what does it even mean to be Catholic in the United States if you know if the Church acts in accordance with its doctrine to, to the extent that I'm understanding that correctly, and and were to make that choice of excommunicating a leader who were really in flagrant violation of it, you know what if in that kind of a conflict, your immediate choice would be to abandon the church. Like what, what sort of a Catholic are you and what does it even mean to be Catholic? It seems like you're putting your loyalty to this temporal leader above what you would otherwise consider a faith. So what does it, what does that even mean? So, um, man, you've really teed up a lot that I could talk about here. Um, so, I mean, one, one thing is that like, the, and this is just to appease any canon lawyers that happen to be listening to this. The likely juridical recourse here would be to exclude him from communion, not strictly speaking as communication. Um, it, it's for legal reasons having to do with the way canon law works. Um, it's, it's been applied to some politicians. Um, my understanding is that Cuomo actually had this canon, not the excommunication one, the one that I'm saying would be applied to Biden. It's like 915, 913. I can't remember the number. I'm sorry. I'm um, deeply impressed already. But uh, it, it was already applied to Cuomo because he was living with a mistress and um, he had previously attempted marriage and wasn't like, I don't think the marriage had been annulled or whatever. So he's like publicly living in scandal right by living with that mistress and from what i heard like nobody knows for sure but basically supposedly his bishop had a conversation with him and he stopped going to communion so you know that we as far as anybody knows that canon was applied in that context so it's not without precedent that like american politicians have been excluded from communion but it it does kind of come down to what the bishop wants to do and what the bishop thinks is prudent because like you say um if it is the case that half of American Catholics would, I don't know, walk away from the church in some sense, that's that's very serious. And um, I mean, there's a real problem here because it's already a problem that he's giving scandal in this way and essentially contradicting a matter that's you know, it's it's a defeat de fide like matter of belief. You um, 
abortion is murder, right? And um, that doesn't necessarily tell us exactly how we need to go about it, right? It doesn't mean we need like anti-abortion death squads going door to door. We can we can be a lot more gentle about it than that. But if we're not even willing to use the tools that are in the law for correcting politicians who, for better or worse, set moral examples for our citizenry, then, you know, what is the law really good for at that point, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, and even more than that, I, I think from the from the viewpoint of individual Catholics, if mm-hmm. you know, if the church makes this move of in some way excommunicating a political leader, and your response to that is to say, "Well, I'm a Protestant now," or even to speculatively say, "If they did that, I would become a Protestant." I mean, mm-hmm. I, like it, I, I'm genuinely horrified by that. Again, yeah. not as a Catholic, but as somebody who is looking at other people as spouse a set of beliefs. And yeah. well, there's actually a distinction to- for what you're talking about. So, in a sense, they are kind of materially defecting from the church on this issue, right? But they haven't formally defected from the church on this issue. And there's a similar distinction drawn with things like heresy, which gets thrown around way too much, right? <laughs> Does it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm privy to the trad wars and things like that. And it's, you know, everybody calls people they don't like a heretic. It's, it's very tiresome and nobody knows what it means. Not even I know what it means, but I'm but I know just a little bit more to know to be cautious, right? So yeah. um, you know, you can be a material heretic without intending to be, right? Like you can say something wrong that contradicts the church the church's teaching on some primary object of dogma, and that technically would make you a material heretic, but you didn't mean to be, so you're not like it's okay. Just, you know. Don't, as long as you don't obstinately hold to that belief after being corrected by your bishop, then you would be a formal heretic if you were, you know, formally corrected and invited to, you know, communion, so to speak, with your bishop and and to kind of return to the fold, so to speak. And then if you reject that invitation, then you're like a formal heretic and then, you know, there's or uh, you can be formally excommunicated or whatever. So, um, sorry, I'm like breezing over this and I'm sure there's people that are going to listen to this episode. They're screaming at me right now and I'm so sorry, but please, um, please do not scream at Chris. This is for a general audience. And I, I promise this is improving our baseline of understanding. But I, but, but I think you've identified the spirit of the issue, right? Like what it means to be, to be Catholic is to be in communion with the Pope and to believe what the church binds you to believe. And it's not that, you know, it's honestly like not even that hard. Um, the church teaches, you know, dogmatically and definitively on a relatively kind of small set of concentric circles. Right. And that's not to say there isn't a lot to dig into there, but they're not asking you to believe that. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, you know, the geocentrism, the church never taught that definitively or anything. Nobody was ever bound to believe that. And the issue with Galileo had more to do with the fact that he was, he didn't actually have enough evidence to substantiate the model. It wasn't Mm -hmm. substantiated until later. He was just running on a guess. And then he was also insulting the Pope a bunch, which in those days got you thrown in prison, which he deserved, but we'll leave that. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, I mean, you're not like, I can hear the rees from, from miles away. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I can, I can recharge my batteries (laughs) off that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, like the church has no issue with evolution. For example, if you go to Catholic school, they're going to teach you about evolution, right? There's, there's nothing about evolution that contradicts Genesis because we don't read Genesis literally, you know, just as an example. 
Yeah. But, you know, abortions, you're actually obligated on that one. That one's actually obligatory. As a side note, I might hit you up later, Chris, about the we don't read Genesis literally question, because uh, for my own approach to a bunch of this stuff, I methodologic as a methodological choice, I tend to think it through first um, so that I can form a view on a lot of the topics and then learn what people have said. Um, but the reading things metaphorically or literally is like super important. And I'd kind of be curious for the some of the historical, like when yeah, that happened. Yeah, well, just so anybody listening has like a, a thread to follow, St. Augustine warned against reading Genesis overly literally. Mm-hmm. Um, we have like the three spiritual senses in which you can, it's like anaphoric, allegoric, and the other one or something, or anagogical, allegor- allegorical, anagogical, and then I forget the other one. I'm sorry again. But um, yeah, so those are like kind of the traditional interpretive modes mm-hmm. for spiritual reading. And then St. Augustine's point was basically like, obviously you need to read something in the literal sense just to like, you know, do your first kind of passive reading it. But then you need to realize that there is a genre to the text and the genre of Genesis is right. not a literal moment by moment accounting of like literal kind of modern understanding of history. Right. That's not the genre the writers were operating in. And to pretend that they were is just fooling yourself. So useful to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'll pitch this more to you, Michael. So I, I'm first of all curious whether you might accept a premise that in some ways the United States is not any longer religious in, in a traditional sense by and large. I mean, so I was thinking about this from the perspective of that, that idea that a large number of Catholics might abandon the church for political reasons, but you know, I could think about other examples. I mean, my impression of Judaism in the United States and Reform Judaism in particular, perhaps, is that there there are a number of churches who whose scope of belief has become so large that perhaps you can be a reasonably upstanding member of that church without having any sort of belief in God at all. Um, and I guess I'm first curious whether you accept this premise, and then second if you would be willing to rank what you think people actually believe in, if anything at all. (laughs) That's a good one. Yes. Um, So I'll, I'll tell you my approach to the question. Um, So I'm very interested in knowing what people really truly believe. And um, I mean this uh, to refer to like pre-verbal instincts and intuitions and things of that sort. So a a bunch of my background is that I've done like a bajillion hours, like no question over 10,000, but like I don't even have an estimate of um, introspection type activities. And so I come at a lot of this from like a, with a sort of psychological lens. Um, And so a thing you'll find is that you believe things that you didn't realize that you believed. Um, for example, I was reading, uh, today some, I was reading tragedy and hope by Carol Quigley. Um, and they're talking about, uh, the war in the Pacific and there's some line about these like little tiny islands. And I suddenly realized that I'm afraid of being on a tiny Island in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And (laughs) I was like, what the, I didn't think, I didn't think I had any like, you know, phobias of that type, like just like being on an Island, you know, scorpions or something like that. That's an example of what I mean, where, um, you know, the, the rationalists used to call this beliefs and a leafs um, and mm. know, beliefs and, and endorsements is a different type of language. So 
to me, this is why it's a puzzle where one of my kind of um, esoterical phrases has been that a true atheist is hard to find. Um, And I also believe that a true individualist is hard to find. And what I mean by that is that you can find anybody who endorses all kinds of things um, who believe very different things. Right. And so I'm very attentive to the difference between like uh, the the deepest form of, of belief which can often be described propositionally. I don't think it's just like murky chaos. I think you can find a deep down belief like God will protect me or a deep down belief that like, you know, we're all fucked and none of this means anything. Right. Um, And the same person believing either of those might say different things about who they are, what their identity is. They might follow scripture. They might say they're atheists, but, but I I see this like kind of uh, rift often between the verbal and and nonverbal layers. Yeah. Uh, That, that's really cool. I've usually thought about this historically as from from the opposite direction where people will, you know, claim to believe things, but then if you push them a little bit or put them in a position where say they have to make a bet about it, if you want to go the very rationalist route, they very quickly no longer seem to have the courage of their convictions. Right. But right. this is this is the opposite case where somebody really does truly seem to believe something but they're just not aware of it. Right. And and I'm also fascinated in this uh, there's too too many rabbit holes I could go down, but I'm fascinated by this. Be- and I do want to actually answer your question. Um, but yeah. uh, Dan Carlin has this uh, episode on the, what is it? The monster rebellion. Um, <clears throat> yes. Right. And he talks about those two guys who at the end get basically, you know, peeled apart by burning hooks or whatever, you know, because the, as punishment for like running this uh, cult in the city and all this fucked up stuff they were doing and he describes how at least the story goes that one of them just sort of is praising god right and you get these interesting stories in history where there are people who even through the the most embodied of of uh, experiences that a, perhaps a person can go through which is uh you know you're experiencing your own physical death you know happening moment by moment in like a torturous situation um uh you start to see something about like what's underneath, right? That makes me sound like a fucking sociopath. I'm not trying to <laughs> trying to sound like that. Like um, I'm thinking of the Joker now, you know, all the little emotions anyway. Um, <laughs> but I think there's such thing as true faith. That's I'll put it like that. So when you ask about America and whether America is a Christian country, I think the truth is going to be that in many ways, um, let's just pre- presume that it was good for it to be a Christian country. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not stating a view on that yet, but presuming that it was the case, you could then believe that um, we kind of deep down actually do believe a lot of the Christian stuff, but also have lost the ability to tack towards it because we've lost the endorsement and we've lost the practice, right? We've lost the rituals in many ways and lost the um, practice of, of going to church and whatever. Um so in other words, I think that people's official beliefs and official endorsements and verbal activities and like if you're Jewish, if you actually like do Shabbat or whatever, I think that kind of leads the mind and helps shape the mind and is often the kind of um, the kind of lead, if it makes sense, on, on the rest of the person. So um, anyway, I could say a lot more here, but I want to bounce it back to you to make sure you can uh, grab the wheel here. Yeah. Um, Chris, do you have any thoughts about that? I think. Yeah. Um, so I'll give like one quick example, um, leading up to my conversion, I politically have been, oh, you know, somewhere in the libertarian anarchist spectrum. And that was partly why you and I knew a bunch of the same people, right, Eigen? And, um, I still have, (laughs) I still have sympathies for that, but I stopped calling myself those things after I converted. And it isn't because I've like 
disavowed everything about it or every like, um, you know, proposition that a libertarian or an anarchist might believe. But I was more interested in learning what the church thought about political forms and structures and what justice actually is and what that looks like and that kind of thing. I just, I just wanted to think with the church, you know, and um, most people brought up in the church. And, and by the way, just for clarification, when I say the church, assume I mean the Catholic church, right? Yeah. Um, we, but when you look at like most people brought up in the church, people who aren't adult converts like me, they, you know, they, they might go to Catholic school. They might not. If they don't, they take CCD classes so they can receive the sacrament of confirmation when they're in high school. And then they're just kind of glad to be done with that Catholic stuff. And then it doesn't really matter for them anymore. And then their beliefs actually get formed by university or by their peer group. I don't, I don't, I don't think Christian belief or Catholic social teaching is actually informing um, most people's morals or values. And to the extent that people bring up Catholic social teaching, and I, I'm going to try to be gentle here because I'm accusing a lot of people, but a lot of people that make reference back to Catholic social teaching are just looking for like a hand axe they can grab off the table for something they believed prior to the faith, right? Mm. They just found out that this thing they were brought up in happened to have some backing for like something that they already cared about. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's it's interesting what you say about cradle Catholics, if, if I can use the term of art. I, I don't know if that's it's pejorative. Fine. No, it's but, fine. So when I was in Boy Scouts, my troop was actually based in the local Catholic church. And I found the the men who were running it to be pretty genuinely devout, not all the time and, and not to any sort of an unreasonable extent. And I wonder if some of the reason for, I mean, there was certainly some selection where, you know, that they, they were people who were active in the church. And so you know, almost certainly they would have some active interest in the religion. But also I think there was a class element to it where they, they seemed like they were guys who grew up in the area. They didn't move too far away. They all worked in trade. And I wonder if perhaps just not being exposed to whatever you're exposed to in university may have led that initial upbringing to stick more. I think that's part of it. I think also like it's it's pretty easy to find a traditionally minded Catholic who will give a full throated defense of geographical rootedness. Right. And that's not just like in your personal life or in your family life. And, you know, we're not talking about like a silly, like Tolkien esque, like Hobbiton type thing, but mm. people used to be a lot more rooted. And um, to give you like a couple of examples of like why that matters, my wife and I live in Austin, Texas. We have a five and a half month old son, right? We have no family here. None. We have a few good friends, but, you know, our good friends are busy. And so we get some help here and there from our friends and we're very grateful for it. But we don't really have family to help us here, to help us to raise a family. Right. And that just makes everything harder. Um, it, I think it is a, a significant contributor to people wanting to have smaller families, in fact. Right. So there's the fact that they don't go to university. There's also just that rootedness. And then another factor of rootedness is um, American parish culture is pretty odd. Um, they have this idea of parish registration, right? You register with your parish. That doesn't exist in canon law. Your parish is defined by territory, right? Because that's how it's huh. always worked. So as a result, although we go to the extraordinary form mass here in the Diocese of Austin, because we have an attachment to the old Latin mass, right? We actually tithe to our 
our territorial parish and we help out at our CIA there because I believe that we have a traditional and economical obligation to help the place that we're actually in. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think there's selection bias there. Like there's a strong selection bias to people who are actually active in their, in their local church because a a minority of American Catholics actually go to all masses of precept that they're actually supposed to go to, which is basically Sunday mass plus like the handful of holy days of obligation, you know, like January 1st, December 25th, that kind of thing. Um, and then from there, the next kind of neck in the funnel is like who actually helps out with, you know, catechizing, uh, you know, the seven-year-olds for first communion, who helps out with the Catholic school, things like that. That's in the, That's a much smaller population even from the first one. So, yeah, I think the fact that they were active in their local parish is definitely going to select for, uh, you know, people who really care about this stuff. Yeah. So I think one, I, I think that the, you know, the, the sociology of religion, and I say that not to sort of diminish the importance of religion as an institution apart from something to be studied, but I mean, you know, that's one way that you could look at it. So the, the sociology of religion as, you know, a, an entity that perpetuates itself or plays a role in a cult in, you know, people's lives. That's not quite what I'm getting at. I think an issue that's particularly interesting to me as somebody who's about to become a father is the role that religions play in forming the, the moral character of adherence and possibly even non-adherence. I mean, you know, I, I have a lot of wishes for how I would, the sort of life that I would like for my daughter and to a certain extent, what sort of person she ends up being, you know, I would love for her to be healthy and smart and beautiful and all of these things, but it's important to me that she, in some sense is a good person too. I'm not sure how much people think about that, but it's really of concern to me. I mean, I, I would like for my daughter to not be an asshole basically, um, if, if, if I were to really over reduce it. And so one thing that's been at the front of my mind is how, how do people become people who are not in some sense dicks? And it, the, another thing happened on Twitter just last night where I put up a poll prompted by some reply that just asked, do you think you would be happier if you were somewhat more evil? And the last time I checked about 45% of people said yes to that. And that really threw me because it, it has never occurred to me that some in doing things that I thought were bad or, or evil, which seems like an even stronger term might be a shortcut to being happy, but it seems like a lot of people have that idea. And, and that was actually pretty disturbing to me because, you know, I think about doing evil things and it's always felt to me like a, Maybe something you do in a moment of weakness or if you're really angry or if you're just thoughtless, but doing doing evil things for one's gain and actually the idea of becoming happy as a consequence of that is is something that's pretty alien to me. So I guess partly what the hell is going on there, if either of you have any insights? And two, what how might that sort of a belief propagate? It doesn't feel it doesn't feel particularly Christian to me at least, but I'm not sure about that. So I have um, a lot of thoughts on this. 
you know, there's a, I have a friend who is kind of an expert on the classics and um, he has this interesting view that things like Nietzsche should be included among the classics, but taught later. And there's kind of the idea that in terms of moral development, interestingly, Nietzsche himself might've agreed with this. um, But the, the, an idea that in terms of moral development, it's helpful to sort of apply a template early that gets complexified later on, but you don't start people out with like, you know, the blonde beast and the fucking aquiline uh, cruelty (laughs) of the heroic, whatever. Um, Yeah. And the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in some of the developmental questions because I think there are some, there's sort there are like these like sequences of, of like moral development, I guess. Um, I think, which is, you know, I think there's a version where when you are young, you know, again, in Nietzsche, what is it? The you know, Zarathustra leaves his contemplations at the very beginning and he is described as childlike, right? And the idea of the child has this like special position as something is, that is after prior stages. But um, you also start as a child, right? And so yeah. it's like as a child, you I think that the, the children are kind of like uh, the Greek gods a little bit in that they're sometimes they're selfish and short, short-sighted and kind of cruel, but powerful and willful. Um, but they can be corrected by circumstance, you know, sort of stormy, stormy attitudes or whatever. Um, I think there might be a way in which, and uh, I'm kind of speculating here, um, not being a parent. So what the hell do I know? Um, but I was a kid. Um, and I think there can be a way in which we start as these sort of like willful beings who only do good because of fear of punishment. Um, yeah. And then I think part of life is learning to uh, part of development. And I, I think not everybody's lives actually lead them there, um, is perhaps knowing the meaning of morality, um, and solving some of these problems. Like personally, I, I think that things like being a good person are like really selfishly useful. Um, and it's partially a societally contingent fact, but it's like, if you want to make a lot of money and, uh, kick a lot of ass and have a happy romantic life. It like helps to be a decent person. Right. And, you know, uh, but, but, th- but that's contingent on, on circumstance in some ways. Um, so uh, anyway, I, I got a lot there, but basically uh, it's an important question. And, and I think a lot of times people don't ever leave the like fear of punishment, including self punishment type phase. Yeah. So, okay. So here's, here's another thing that occurred to me when I was prepping for this, there's this old apocryphal story about Abraham Lincoln. So Abraham Lincoln is going down the road in a, in a carriage and he's having an argument with his friend about why people act the way they do. And his, his friend argues that people act, you know, sometimes out of goodness, they're just naturally altruistic. And Abraham Lincoln says, no, no, people always act in their own interest. And as they're going down the road, they're, they're passing a field full of mud and they notice a pig stuck in the mud, struggling, probably drowning. So Abraham Lincoln calls for the stagecoach to be stopped and stepping out of the stagecoach in a stovepipe hat with a new suit on, he leaps into the mud filled field and sort of like forces the pig out of the mud and gets it onto dry land and, and saves its life. And he gets back into the stagecoach dripping with mud, his suit completely ruined and his friend is looking at him smugly and says, well, I guess that solves our argument. And, and Abraham Lincoln says, what are you talking about? And his friend says, well, you just ruined your suit to save that pig's life. 
And Abraham Lincoln says, oh, that was entirely selfish. I would have felt terrible if I had left him there. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I wonder if it, it seems like that kind of – like there are, there has to be some – there's some kind of emerging of like a sense of altruism with one's own sense of well-being. Like you just want – to do things that are good or you, you you just have some identification with doing good things as doing things that are good for yourself. And I, I don't know. I'm curious, Chris, if, if there's some way that this is often structured in Catholicism, I you, you, you've been through RCA yourself recently. So I assume that you're kind of fresher on some of these concepts than I was as, you know, somebody who was exposed as a child. Uh, let's not give people the expectation that they'll learn about <laughs> an RCA, but, um, I, I have listened to podcasts, so I'm sure that makes me an expert theologian, right? I mean, um, honestly, <laughs> what? <laughs> you're not going to hear me talking about podcasts. Yeah, there you go. But um, yeah, so, you know, this is actually a topic I kind of struggled with as an atheist, like trying to figure out like, okay, you know, how much do I care about altruism? Because like, oh, one thing I forgot to mention, when I was an atheist, I was a, uh, like a values and morals nihilist. So altruism was an exercise of pleasing myself because I didn't want to feel bad about myself, that kind of thing, kind of like what Lincoln is talking about in the, uh, in, in the anecdote. Obviously, I don't feel the same way now. So I'm going to try to talk about this as compactly as I can, and I apologize. But what, what you're kind of grasping for here is the Christian concept of charity. And charity is a, it, it's jargon. It's a technical term. It's not just almsgiving. That's why we use different words for those, right? Charity is to love as God loves, like agape, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, there's three spiritual virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And you only have charity when you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is that, that spiritual union with the Godhead in the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ that the Christian life, the sacraments are meant to bring you to, right? And people have a couple different formulas for explaining what charity is. One is to love the other as other. Another is to love as God loves or to do something out of the sake of the love of God, right? When, when people say for the love of God, they usually mean it just kind of casually semi-blasphemy, blasphemously, but yeah. they're actually accidentally evoking the original Christian idea of charity, right? So it is. It is for your good. It is for your happiness to do things that help you to get to heaven, right? And, you know, that's okay. Like we have in the act of contrition, which is a prayer, we say at the end of confession. And it moves us from attrition, which is an imperfect form of contrition, which basically amounts to being afraid of going to hell. And then it moves us towards perfect contrition for our sins, which is hating your sins because you they offend God, because you love God that much. It, it says, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, and I detest all my sins, because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, so that's attrition, but most of all, because they offend thee, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love, right? And then it goes on to talk about confessing your sins and doing penance. And then the idea is that actually what the sacrament is doing, at least I heard this from one one note, was that the sacrament is actually perfecting your attrition into perfect contrition, and that's what actually sanctifies you, your perfect contrition, that interiority, right? So is it selfish to want to go to heaven? Yes, but the idea is that as you advance in the spiritual life, your love 
becomes directed more perfectly towards the love of God, which causes you to love your neighbor, right? Which is what Jesus was talking about. Love God, love your neighbor. And the reason is because loving God means you will love your neighbor because they are an icon of the image of God, an icon of Christ. They are a creation of God, a, you know, a child of God, perhaps, right? And um, that's, that's kind of how I would say Christian teaching touches on that, like selfishness, altruism kind of Gordian knot. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And it, it's very interesting to me. I'm curious whether you see contrition as being inseparable from, say, Catholicism or Christianity or even religion. It, I think it's something that I identify with as, as a sentiment, but I, I definitely, it's, it's entirely possible that I believe in God, but that might hinge on a sufficiently, you know, um, generous interpretation of what God means. So I'm curious about that in particular, like how much this actually hinges on love of God, given some conception of God. Well, it's it's well, it's actually harder than that. It's impossible without the sacraments. You need the grace of baptism, the life of grace of the sacraments to really be able to um, experience that supernatural grace. Um, when Jesus talks about how I am the vine and you are the branches and without me, you will have no life within you. That's the life of grace he's talking about. And you have to be attached to that life source, that, that source of grace to, to really experience these things in a real and supernatural way. I think that it's possible, you know, that perhaps an atheist could experience a conversion and outside the sacraments, God could choose to grant them that supernatural grace, which could cause them to be in heaven or something. Like we, the church has taught for some time now that it's possible for people outside the sacraments to be saved, but I wouldn't want to count on it. I'm I'm a very flawed and very selfish person. I want the I want the certainty that the sacraments gives us. It's it's not that you can't be saved outside the sacraments. It's just that you really don't want to bet your immortal soul on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I had one other question that maybe I'll pitch to our resident philosopher, um, Michael. Do you, do you have any idea about the history of agape and and sort of its I don't know maybe its cultural prevalence say before Jesus. Who, who I think maybe was its biggest proponent, but I might be making that up. Yeah, this is actually one a, a question I cannot take. I don't have the answer to that in particular. I'm like, it's Greek. Um, that's yeah. what I've heard. Yeah. Okay, I respect that. Yeah. Yeah, I think what I'm what I'm kind of careening toward a bit is I I'm maybe I'll like all else sequel somewhat neutral on. Uh, I'm not entirely sure I believe that. Real quick, can I comment on the agape thing since you asked about yeah. it? Yeah, oh yeah, please. So so the agape, like the pre-Christian agape is is love which centers in kind of like a, a moral preference or a love of virtue or something. So mm. when we talk about agape as divine love, it's to love what God perverse, right? I see. It's, it's, okay. a, it's a moral preference towards God's will. I see. So it's kind of a – so the, the Christian conception of it is kind of a refinement on – a pre-existing idea that was more virtue-based? Oh, yeah. I mean, Thomism is built entirely on an Aristotelian framework. I mean, it, it's it got the scaffolding got upgraded a fair bit. You know, the, the spiritual virtues were not articulated by, you know, uh, the philosopher as 
St. Thomas Aquinas refers to Aristotle. And there's some, um, there's some Neoplatonian stuff floating around in the church fathers as well. So it, it was, it was all in the mix, so to speak, but it was all very novel too, because you all have to remember that, you know, ultimately what this all comes down to is the immortal, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, divinely provident, all-knowing God took flesh and became man. And that's what really lets us enter into communion with God, right? And that's just a bizarre thought for any kind of ancient philosopher. That would have been an unthinkable sacrilege of the divine nature to them, right? It's it's uh, it, it was alien to the Jews as well. Obviously, that's why they got so mad. So, yeah. So, I guess, I guess I'm thinking a bit about you know this practical rather than spiritual, directly spiritual side of things. That is, how do you help a country achieve arete? <laughs> I, I've asked this question about pets. But, you know, again, having, (laughs) I I mean it, I mean it. Like I've, I've got these cats and I want them to be able to live the best possible life that a cat can live. And I want to help them become just, you know, cats that are everything that a cat could possibly be. And, and, you know, that's, I recognize that that's very silly and I mean it halfway joking, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you want to provide an environment where, where cats can, can really thrive and achieve some epitome of cat virtue, whatever that entails. I have a but, thought here. Yeah. On this one. Um, the, uh, the way I, I have thought about this um, is influenced in part by Eastern traditions as I received them through watching a shitload of Kung Fu movies as a kid. And then hell yeah. Um, <laughs> digging around for like, what are the concepts behind some of this stuff? And, um, I read a whole lot of like samurai uh, texts and when I was in high school. And, um, but I, I think about skill a lot, basically. And, and this is something I write about on my newsletter or have written about in my newsletter where. So I so I guess just for context here, I think I, I'm starting to realize in this conversation is helping me towards this realization that I actually do have huge issues with religion as such. Um you know, uh, William James makes the distinction in his, uh, book, the, what is it? The varieties of religious experience, um, between, uh, like the individual relationship to the divine and the practices of man, right. And the, the institutions and the, that's the religious side. Um, and the, um, the reason in part is because when I think about, you know, you know uh, when Chris mentioned for the love of God, um, I, I basically the way I think people work is that we have a concept of goodness in our minds um, and that that is what sort of causes us to act. And it's what we're seeking. We're seeking the good. And um, I think that we can sometimes conflate the thing in our mind with a thing in reality, which if you are a believer exists and is God, um, or if you're not a, not a believer does not exist. Right. And, um, I guess the, uh, I'm trying to steer this to, to the question of like, you asked, like, how would you get a country to, to a place of moral virtue? Right. My conception of virtue is the ability to attain the good, um, by acting on, uh, flexible enough models of the world that you can successfully do things. And so, you know, when you get the, you know, the, the Greek idea that, that, 
um, virtue is the balance between extremes, right? Um, and, you know, and you have that, like, cowardice would be running from the battle and um, being excessively, what's the term they use? You know, reckless. Foolhardy. Foolhardy, right, is, you know, running towards it and, and getting wrecked. Um, you would want to walk the middle road. I think what you want is not just to walk the middle road, but to flexibly run and approach when you should, Right. And this is a skill to me. This is a skill based question. It's, it's just a very mundane one where um, even when it comes to human affairs, like being a good person. Right. Um, like, I think interacting skillfully with your peers, as we discover on Twitter, for example, is non-trivial. It is not that easy to be decent when people are being really weird towards you, you know, and you sort of learn to make a call. Like, is this a moment where I like say something a little bit firm and get someone to fuck off or I'd make a point or whatever, or would that just be aggrandizing myself? Right. Should I just, you know, turn the other cheek, et cetera, you know, so to speak. So I guess the, um, I, I guess part of my, when it, the reason I framed it with like being in, having an issue with religion is I believe very firmly that everyone has a, and this may put me into some sect or whatever. Uh, I, I don't know that everyone has a grasp on goodness or can attain a better grasp on goodness uh, regardless of the religious affiliation and some of the language of godliness gets mixed up with the co- the real uh, existing thing that I believe drives us to to act in the world, which is our sense of what is good. Um, very, very broadly construed here to me, not just morally good, but like, um, you know, warm water on a wound is good and waffles are good and a soft sweater is good and, and uh, many things are good. So... Pursuing the good by means of flexible models, that is what virtue is. That's my take. I have a good point to riff off there. Please do. So um, you're, the Catholic Church actually agrees with you that people outside of the church can can know what is good, um, not in the fullness that comes with knowing the divine law and, and you know knowing divine revelation and things like that. But you know, the church has taught on natural law for some time now, and you know, the main authority we resort to on that is St. Thomas Aquinas. I'm going to keep bringing him up today. But, um, you know, they're, one of the points that um, <clears throat> natural law is this idea that's mentioned in Scripture. St. Paul talks about, um, let me see if I have the quote handy. Uh, yeah, okay. So in Romans uh, chapters 1 and 2, I'll read the first one first. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And then in Romans two, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto them. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law for they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there's this idea that even without this like contact with the divine that like the people of Israel had had or that the church does when it preaches the gospel, people have this natural law, this moral law written on their hearts, right? Um, but it's also worth knowing that it talks about how who by their righteous, unrighteousness they can suppress the truth. Um, sinning, uh, embracing vice, it can darken the truth in your heart and it can make it harder for you to know what's right or wrong. And I think that even 
you know, unbelievers can see that that's a reality of human nature. I, I, I think we've all seen that. I think we all have like these stories and ideas circulating in our in our cultures that make us aware of that possibility. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I appreciate how you framed that. I, uh, you know, I have Augustine on my shelf and I have not yet sat down to actually read it, but I am continually like, it, it's arrogant for me to say, but it's like, please understand, I came from a place of extremely arrogant atheism. And so I'll say, um, I'm increasingly, I'm always impressed to see like, holy shit, there, there's actually like a ruling on this. There's actually like a whole body of work on, on this question. Like they've been at this for such a long time, you know? Um, so no, I, I appreciate how you framed that. And, uh, it helps when you bump into an obnoxious note also. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. I, I, I mean, yeah, the concept, it's like you, you said the, the word Gentile is used. Yeah. That's what St. Paul uses. I, I've always been confused about that because I, I thought the how does this work that I thought Gentiles were what Jews called Christians. No, it's what Jews called all non-Jews. It's what, it just means nations. What Jews called non-Jews was Gentiles. Yeah, right. and it just means the nations. Right. Oh, I see. And so then, when it's used in the context of Romans, it's it it means the nations. Yeah. Well, because he's actually kind of. I mean, so the Christians in that he's addressing in Romans, they, um, a, a lot of Paul, St. Paul's epistles are addressing Jewish converts to Christianity right. that were having a hard time, like dealing with the idea of Gentile conversion and Gentile, like, um, understand I'm using this word very loosely, righteousness and things like that. Right. Circumcision was a big issue. That's what the the council of Jerusalem and right, the right, book right. of Acts was about and all that. So um, the word changes meaning a little bit as you go through church history though, because like, for example, St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, we call it the Summa Contra Gentiles. That is not what he titled it, but let's just go with that. Okay. His Summa Contra Gentiles, he wrote before the Summa Theologica and he's essentially using um, basically Aristotle um, as kind of a common agreed upon framework for addressing uh, Jews and Muslims, but especially Muslims at the time, because of Averroes, Salvasana, that kind of thing. Mm. And he proves not only the existence of God, but the truth of the Catholic faith without actually resorting to Catholic Holy Scripture or divine revelation. He just proves it just from, you know, natural philosophy, natural law, things like that. And so when he says Gentiles there, he just means like non-believers who aren't in the church. And that has somewhat to do with like ecclesial theology of like the church is like the spiritual Israel, that kind of thing. But that makes um, Jews really angry and I'm not trying to upset anybody. It's just, that's what it's evoking. That's all. Right. Right. Man. God, these questions. I mean, I think part of my own, the reason I might, at some points have described myself as like a God fearing atheist is because to me, the, these questions just seem so extremely important and I'm not even sure I believe in an immortal soul. Right. Uh, I, to me, and I, I try to find multiple arguments from different stances, right? There's some um, Christian heretics who agree with you, by the way, they're called conditionalists. <laughs> what, what is that view? Um, so there's, there's a, there's a couple different ones. So there are some, um, who believe that, well, I mean, actually, so I know Orthodox Jews that believe 
that the souls of the damned are basically destroyed. They aren't mm-hmm. just tormented forever, right? So there's some Christians who believe something similar, and that essentially um, you you get you just get annihilated rather than actually being tormented in hell forever. Um, there are some who believe that you experience the spiritual torments of hell until final judgment at the time of the resurrection of the dead, but only the righteous experience the resurrection and the damned do not. But that's not really what Christians in general, and this is actually something like the Catholic Church and the Orthodox and Protestants generally agree on, the resurrection is for everyone. So the the damned will experience the tortures of hell spiritually and bodily, not not just uh, like as an ethereal spirit thing. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, it's very interesting. I kind of like desperately want to be part of some religion, but in some way also know that I at least cannot yet choose to. And this is in part, uh, you know, idiosyncratic to me, which is that I can't stand um, sort of being, having a worldview that I don't understand, you know? And um, I, I think that the social structures are like incredibly important and maybe the only thing that can save mankind a uh, full stop. Um, and not even merely spiritually, I mean, like physically, like from nuclear annihilation is, um, or, or whatever other type of annihilation is, uh, a spiritual reorientation. And I guess for me personally, it's sort of like, I find myself wandering, uh, through the desert in my own, in my own way and, um, sort of trying to learn from all the traditions I can without becoming a sort of lame version of a of of a syncretist i guess um i I do find some versions of syncretism pretty lame where they're like oh well like zeus was like odin like is god is whatever and it's just seems just like scrambling up all these concepts in one big mush Mm -hmm. um so i'm not a fan of that i i I don't think of it Mm -hmm. like just stitching together whatever you can but i guess my own experience is i try to learn the things as directly as i can and mm-hmm. I, I will tell you that I have had experiences where I believe I've been, I believe that I was interacting with God. Sometimes that has taken the form of Jesus, which I guess I'm sharing this on the podcast, but I've not told, you know, my, my uh, uh, Jewish relatives and, you know, um, <laughs> and so, and what does that mean? Right. Does that, and coming again from a psychological angle and I try to ground this all very naturalistically, it's like, you know, could be the spirit of it, it could be the way that a that a, a a christian would describe it to put it too too simply um it could be that that is what happened um it could be that i've just been reading the bible and that's the concept that was in my mind right that was what was available to me to find some kind of insight and it took the form of a visual imagination um etc um so I, I've also been very interested in, I, I also have next to me, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, um, uh, which is um, St. Ignatius is like, basically like have spiritual experiences protocol. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it, yeah, it, the, I've sort of had very interesting time, pe- you know, parsing through that and trying to sort of see what he's getting at, uh, both from like a, with a spiritual lens and just with a psychological lens. Cause I, as I mentioned, I try to keep those nearby. Right. The only comment I would make about St. Ignatius uh, spiritual exercises is they, they're kind of intended for like people who are pretty well kind of seated in the faith. And 
Um, I'm not one to steer anybody from, you know, a potentially fruitful encounter with the divine, but um, right. can I make a suggestion? So yeah, certainly can. Religion is, you know, in the Catholic conception, it's it's not just an intellectual exercise, right? Like it's a bodily exercise. It, it's something you do in community. It's something that has a hierarchy and an authority. You know, there's obedience and assent involved. And one of the experiences I had that that helped move me where I needed to go was I went to a traditional Latin mass. It was a Christmas Eve mass, not the actual like midnight Christmas mass, just Christmas Eve mass, the propers for the day before. And it was my first time ever seeing anything like that. I'd never been to a traditional Latin mass before. I'd never really seen anything that looked quite so properly like religion, right? Mm. And those statues and those paintings and the stained glass and the smells and the bells and all of it, it's all there because those physical signifiers, those icons, those sensorial experiences, they are there to help us to access what's there and to kind of enter into the, the sacred mystery. Right. And even if it's like an unbeliever, it's just going to be like, okay, this is interesting. Oh, I wonder what he's doing. I have no idea what he's saying. Huh? But if you just kind of go a few times and just kind of soak it in, I think that could be, um, that could be at least be interesting if nothing else for you. I, I, I will share that I've done a, a whole lot of that. I, I visited, um, churches in Jerusalem and I, I once did, uh, I've been lucky enough to go to mass at, uh, St. Peter's in, in Rome as, as well as, um, Westminster Abbey when I, when I was That's there. Great. So yeah. And, and I'll tell you, they, it, it's all astounding. You know, there's, there's, yeah. I, well, anybody I listening and I can robot go, go to mass, <laughs> go to church. Right? <laughs> go to mass oh, next time in the Hagia Sophia. So, um so i guess we're over an hour now and i'm fine with that i've got nothing to do until midnight when i'm talking with sagar sagar i don't know how to pronounce his name and i feel bad about that he's really nice um yeah you should be excited about that yeah um i guess one one last thing we could end on just in case in case either of you have a few more minutes what do we do now i think there's something about the position that oh i don't know everybody is in there's there's this very there's a thread that i think was a little bit more prominent a year ago or two that has maybe subsided a bit but i still think is a pretty pressing question and core to i don't want to say that post-rationality has a mission but some of us do there's there's this aching question of meaning and sort of a sense of atomization that I think a lot of people have that in some ways has only grown with COVID as everybody stops interacting with other people apart from through internet media. And, and so, you know, there, there's some kind of a, I don't know, spiritual void that exists in the United States and, and what do people do next? And Chris, I know saying go to mass is a, honestly, that's, that's not a bad answer. Maybe everybody should just go to mass, but is, is there anything else that, you think we could do as a next step to help our pets attain arate? Well, um, I think kind of from a, the most general possible sense, you know, to quote, you know, somebody in our, you know, wider Twitter circles who has since passed, people need to want to become good. And my particular spiritual path led me to understand that 
you can't do it yourself. You can't do it to yourself. You need, you need that life of grace to do it. But if we could at least get people to care about becoming good for its own sake, for the good of neighbor, for the good of their families, um, get people to love virtue again, to care about that. I think even from a secular point of view, I think that would make a tremendous difference. Just cultivate a culture that cares about virtue and celebrates it and has friendships built on mutual building up of virtue, which is what Aristotle said was the highest form of friendship, the love of virtue and in the other. Yeah. Michael, uh, do what Chris said. And, um, my, uh, I think that ushering along some of these interesting projects that people have um, t- tends to go more places than you might think. And by projects, it, it can be podcasts, it can be companies, it can be just like making art together or, you know, doing a reading or, I don't know, maybe they're going to release that like Clubhouse competitor on Twitter, um, which I would be hyped for. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's stuff like that where if people i don't know man it, it is a little bit like you know hold on to what you care about and keep investing in yourself and becoming a better person and um do cool projects support cool projects and let's all hang out when we're not gonna um get a disease from doing so cool well hey i i like ending on this note and thank you both so much for coming on I, it was a pleasure talking with both of you and I think I actually like having multiple guests on at the same time. I, I think there's some some interesting interplay that can fall out of it, and I don't have to talk quite as much. So um, once again, this is Michael Kersey and Chris Allen. See them both on Twitter. That's at Michael Kersey and at BiteMyApp. And uh, yeah, be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes. <laughs> <laughs>